Welcome to Asbury United Methodist Church. My name's Pastor Will. Thanks for joining our podcast. This is where you'll be able to find all of our sermons, as well as special devotionals and interviews. We hope these messages inspire hope and bring support as you grow on your journey of faith. If you have any questions, or if you want further conversation, or if you simply like what you hear, connect with Asbury through our Facebook page or by checking our website at asburymaitland.org. Well, when I was a kid growing up, there were a few activities I was pretty good at. I wasn't necessarily great at them, I wasn't necessarily excellent at them, but I was fairly decent at them. Um, for example, I was fairly decent at hide-and-go-seek. You remember hide-and-go-seek? I could always manage to find a good hiding place when my friends came looking. Um, I was also fairly decent at Simon Says. Anybody remember Simon Says? I would listen carefully and intently to the person who was Simon and whatever that person was telling us to do. Simon Says, touch your ear. Simon Says, touch your nose. Simon Says, touch your forehead. You remember how that game goes? I was also pretty good at most board games, like Sorry, Monopoly, uh, Twist, Candyland. But along this same line, there were a few activities, actually probably more than a few, but there were at least a few activities that I wasn't so good at. And actually, I wasn't just not good at these activities, I was especially bad at them. Uh, I was especially bad at hula hoop. I know that probably surprises all of you, uh, because when you think of me, you just think of, wow, that guy's an athlete, right? I could only manage to get the hula hoop to go around my body one time before it would fall to the ground. Uh, I was also really bad at skipping rope. I just did not have the stamina or the, uh, just the duration for that or the coordination for that. But there was one activity that stands out from the others. And if I'm honest, I'm still bad at this activity to this very day, and that would be putting together puzzles. I mean, unless it's one of those toddler puzzle sets with four or five giant pieces, Anything more than that is beyond my skill set and capability. And I realize as I share all this that there are some of you with us today, some of you here in the room, some of you with us online, who for whatever reason, you love puzzles. You love putting together puzzles. i got to be honest, I don't understand you. I don't comprehend you. I can't relate to you. Because for me, it's not my cup of tea. I would rather get a root canal than put together a puzzle set. And I don't think that I'm overstating my point. In fact, uh, sometime last year, Amanda and I were playing with Hannah and Noah in uh, our playroom. And while we were playing with them on the ground, Amanda picked up this puzzle set that we had. Now, it wasn't this particular puzzle set. Uh, that puzzle set is now lost, but it was one like this, uh, just one of these inexpensive puzzle sets that you buy from the dollar store. And so she began to put together some of the pieces. And as she was doing this, I picked up one of the pieces, and pardon the pun here, but I had this puzzled expression on my face. Like, huh, I wonder where this piece goes. I wonder how this piece fits with the rest of the puzzle. And that's when Amanda, who's clearly more brilliant than me, she gave me this amazing epiphany and revelation, and I wanted to share it with you today. This is what Amanda said to me. You've got to look at the picture on the box. And so there we have it, folks. When putting together a puzzle set, this is my public service announcement today. When putting together a puzzle set, you first have to look at the overall picture on the box. Well, today at Asbury, uh, we are launching into a new series of messages, as that bumper video showed us. Uh, we're launching into a new series of messages that we're calling The Short of It. Uh, the subtitle is The Entire Story of the Bible 
from creation to new creation. The short of it, the entire story of the Bible from creation to new creation. And the reason we're engaging in the sermon series is that if we're honest, let's be honest this morning, many of us, maybe all of us, have a relationship with this book, the Bible, like I do with puzzle sets. And what I mean by that is oftentimes we pick up the Bible and we open it up and then we come across a random verse, passage, story, and we're like, huh, I wonder where this goes. I wonder how this piece fits with the overarching story of Scripture. Now, sometimes when we do this, sometimes when we pick up the Bible, we open it up, when we come across these random verses, we take them out of context, the results could be pretty funny and humorous. For instance, if you are somebody who happens to be struggling with weight loss, you might appreciate these words from the Old Testament book of Leviticus. Uh, Leviticus chapter 3, verse 16, it says this, All the fat belongs to who? All the fat belongs to the Lord. And so listen, I know we're about to enter the holidays. You don't have to worry about putting on weight during the holidays because all the fat belongs to God anyway. Or for those of you men out there who, like myself, have been struggling with hair loss in recent years, and you're feeling insecure about that, sensitive about that, well, you might appreciate these words from the book of 2 Kings, chapter 2, verse 23 and verse 24. Believe it or not, this story is actually in the Bible. It says this, Elisha, and Elijah was a prophet. Uh, he was uh, somebody whom Elijah, uh, with a J, Elijah had mentored. Elisha left Jericho and went up to Bethel. As he was walking along the road, a group of boys from the town began mocking and making fun of him. Go away, Baldy, they chanted. Go away, Baldy. Not a very nice thing to say. It says this, Elijah turned around and looked at them, and he cursed them in the name of the Lord. Then two bears came out of the woods and mauled 42 of them. <laughs> this is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. That's what you get for making fun of bald people. I mean, how does this story fit with the overarching story of Scripture? Or just one more example. Uh, check out these words from Song of Solomon, uh, chapter 4, verse 2. Uh, the writer here, presumably Solomon, David's son, he says these words to his lover, to the person that he is in love with. Your teeth are as white as sheep, recently shorn and freshly washed. That sounds romantic, doesn't it? I'm going to put that on a Valentine's Day card and give that to Amanda next year. I know she'd appreciate that, comparing her teeth to sheep. Your teeth are as white as sheep, recently shorn and freshly washed. But this is what we do. We open up the Bible, we come across these random words, we take them out of context, and we find the results to be humorous, funny. Other times, though, and let's get serious for a moment, other times when we do this, the results are anything but funny. They can be downright disastrous and harmful. All of us here know that over the years, the Bible has been weaponized and it's been used to oppress people and subjugate them. For example, in the period leading up until the Civil War, slave owners in the South would often cite these words from Ephesians chapter 6, uh, verse 5, to the people that they were enslaving. They would say these words uh, when demanding that these folks obey them. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with deep respect and fear. I mean, what are we to do with this verse? Does this mean that the Bible somehow endorses slavery or blesses slavery? Or along the same line, a number of women 
have felt led to stay in abusive marriages and toxic relationships because of these words, also in Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 5, which are often read out of context. This is what it says. For wives, this means submit to your husbands as to the Lord. Now keep in mind, one verse earlier in Ephesians 5, in Ephesians 5.21, the apostle Paul tells us to submit to one another. So it's not just wives submitting to husbands, but it's also husbands submitting to wives. There is mutual submission that is to take place within marriage, within human relationships, but we miss that truth when we look at the one piece instead of the bigger picture. And so our hope with this sermon series is to give us a big picture view of the Bible, a big picture view of the Bible, so that we can better discern and figure out where all these individual pieces go. And the resource that we're going to be using as we engage in this sermon series, um, obviously our primary resource is going to be the Bible, Scripture, God's Word. But a secondary resource that we're going to be leaning on is a book by Joshua McNall called Long Story Short, The Bible in Six Simple Movements. Uh, Long Story Short, The Bible in Six Simple Movements. If you're interested in purchasing this book, I believe you can find it on Amazon.com. Uh, but Joshua McNall, um, he is a college professor. He teaches at a school in Oklahoma. Uh, he's a professional theologian. And what he does in this book, this is really brilliant, he identifies six major movements of Scripture. Now, granted, he is not the first person who has done this. Other people have done this too, but he does this in a way that is very accessible. It's easy to read, easy to understand, easy to grasp. He identifies these six major movements of Scripture. And by understanding these six major movements, he says, then we can have that big picture view of the Bible that we're after. These are the six major movements that uh, he identifies in his book. Creation, fall, Israel, Jesus, the church, and the new creation. Can you say these with me? Creation, fall, Israel, Jesus, the church, and new creation. Hence the subtitle for this sermon series. The entire story of the Bible from creation, that would be the first movement, to new creation, that would be the last movement. And so what we're going to be doing as a congregation over the next month and a half is we're going to be tracing these six major movements that we find in Scripture. Uh, we're going to start this morning with creation, and then from there, uh, next week, we'll talk about the fall of humanity, and then after that, we'll talk about Israel, the people of God, and then we'll talk about Jesus and the church, and then finally, new creation or the return of Jesus to our planet. And listen, my main hope and prayer as we journey throughout this sermon series is that we won't pop in and out of worship, uh, but instead we'll stay engaged. We'll hang with it till the very end. If we can't worship in person, uh, then we'll be sure to worship online. So by the time we finish this sermon series six weeks from now, we'll have that big picture view of the Bible that we want. Now, that doesn't mean that we still won't get confused by some of the individual pieces, because, listen, I still get confused by some of the individual pieces of the Bible, and I'm a pastor uh, but at the very least, we'll have an overall framework in which to put those individual pieces. Now, before we go into talking about the first movement of Scripture, which would be creation, there's one more thing I want to mention. An aspect of the Bible that we often miss or forget is this, that the Bible isn't a book. I know I referred to the Bible a moment ago as a book, but in truth, the Bible is not a book. looks like a book. It appears to be a book, but the Bible is not a book. You know what the Bible is? The Bible is a library. Uh, our English word Bible comes from the Greek word biblia, which literally means books, 
Not one book, multiple books, a collection of books. Uh, this information is up here on the screen. There are 66 books in the Bible. 66 books. 39 in the Old Testament, 27 in the New Testament. These books were written by at least 40 different primary authors, not to mention some editors along the way, over a 1,500-year period on three different continents, Africa, Europe, Asia, and in two primary languages, Hebrew for the Old Testament, uh, Greek for the New Testament, although there's also a little bit of Aramaic in the Bible, but primarily Hebrew and Greek. And these books make use of multiple literary styles, genres of literature, like parable, apocalyptic literature, prophecy, poetry, historical narrative, letter. And yet what I love and cherish about the Bible is this, that as diverse as the Bible is, the Bible all points to the same God. The same God who loves us, the same God who yearns for us, the same God who longs, who desperately longs to be in a relationship with all of us as human beings. And we see that truth communicated to us in the first movement of the Bible that we're going to talk about in this sermon series, and that would be the movement of creation. Now, it's no surprise that we find the story of creation at the very beginning of the Bible, before we read anything else. Uh, in the first book of the Bible, Genesis chapters 1 and 2. And what really helps us to understand and wrap our minds around the content of these chapters is the historical backdrop against which these chapters were written. The historical backdrop against which these chapters were written. In other words, it wasn't for no reason that these chapters were composed. Instead, something was going on in human history that led God to inspire the writers to compose these chapters. And what was that? Well, most scholars generally agree that Genesis 1 and 2 were composed during the Babylonian exile. The Babylonian exile. This is one of the most monumental events that ever took place uh, in the Old Testament and Jewish history. Basically, in a nutshell, what had happened in 586 B.C. In other words, 586 years before Jesus came to our planet is that King Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian armies, uh, Babylon was this massive empire in the ancient world, this powerhouse, while King Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian armies, they came into Judah, the southern kingdom, where God's people were living. And they came specifically to Jerusalem. Jerusalem was the capital city, the holy city. Uh, and they completely destroyed Jerusalem. And not only that, but the Babylonians also destroyed the temple that Solomon had built. Remember, King David had wanted to build God a temple, but God told David no because he had been in too many wars, he had too much blood on his hands, and so instead Solomon, David's son, he built God a temple, and the people would make sacrifices there, they would worship God, they would honor God. A lot of Jewish people believed that God's presence dwelt within the temple when now the temple has been destroyed. It's been completely ruined. And then to make matters even worse, once all that had taken place, is that the strongest and most able-bodied Israelites were brought by the Babylonians back into Babylon. They were exiled away from their homeland, and that's where they stayed for the next few decades. And it was while the Israelites were in Babylon, and by the way, a lot of uh, the Old Testament talks about this. In fact, uh, one of the Psalms speaks about the Babylonian exile. The Psalm that says, by the rivers of Babylon, where we sat down. You remember this? And there we wept. We remembered Zion. In other words, we remembered what it was like to be God's people living in Jerusalem, the holy city. Well, here the Israelites are. They're now in Babylon. Their whole universe has been destroyed. 
And they're being exposed to Babylonian teaching. It's the air that they're breathing. It's the water that they're drinking. And this teaching included, among other things, a creation story of how this universe came into being. A creation story, according to the Babylonians, it was called the Enuma Elish. The Enuma Elish. Those of you who have studied ancient literature, maybe in high school or college, you might have come across the Enuma Elish before. Uh, this is the Babylonian creation story. We don't have time to get into all the details. If you want to learn more, I would encourage you to go to the computer, type in Enuma Elish on Google. You can find a whole bunch of entries that can explain more. But I'm going to give us this morning the Reader's Digest version of the Enuma Elish. Well, according to the Enuma Elish, before the beginning of the universe, before anything existed, there was this cosmic showdown that took place between all these various gods and goddesses up in the heavens. Well, Marduk, M-A-R-D-U-K, Marduk, the chief Babylonian god, he emerged as the victor of this battle. He was the winner of this battle. And what Marduk did, according to the Babylonians, as a way to signal his victory over his enemies, he took two of his slain rivals. Out of the one slain rival, he created the earth, and out of the other slain rival, he created human beings. And so there was no purpose to creation. There was no order to creation. There was no intent to creation. Instead, creation began out of conflict between all these different gods and goddesses. It began when Marduk created the heavens from this one slain rival and the earth from this other, or human beings from this other slain rival. And so here the Israelites are. They're in Babylon. They're being exposed to this teaching. They're being taught this teaching day and night, 24-7, 365, and it forced them to ask the question, is this true? Is this true about the earth? Is this true about human beings? Is this really how everything came into being? Because, folks, when you're being fed that teaching constantly, after a while, it's really easy to believe it. I'll never forget, as a pastor, one time, uh, there was this uh, gentleman who came to me. He wanted to talk and pray with me. And so he was in my office, and he was telling me a story. And he said to me, you know, when I was growing up, I had a father who would constantly berate me, who would verbally abuse me, just tearing me down with his words. He would say to me, you are worthless. You are garbage. You will never measure up. You will never be good enough. You will never make me proud. You will never make our family proud. You will always bring us shame and embarrassment. And so this gentleman said to me, after a while, I started to believe that about myself because nobody told me otherwise. But then when I was in high school, I had a friend who invited me to go to a church. And so I went to the church service, and I began to hear something else from the pastor and the people. They began to say to me, you're not worthless. You're not garbage. You are a child of the King of Kings. You have worth. You have value. You matter to God and the people around you. He said to me, having that alternative narrative was enough to remind me who I truly was, and that's what the Israelites needed. When they were in Babylon being exposed to this teaching, they needed that alternative narrative of who they were, where they had come from. They needed that competing vision, and that's what they got in the creation story that God inspired the writers to compose. Listen to how the creation story begins. This is from Genesis 1. Verse 1, these are the very first words of the Bible. 
In the beginning, who? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So there we have it right off the bat. Opening words of the Bible. Not Marduk. Not the heavens of the earth were created because of some cosmic showdown that took place between all these gods and goddesses, but rather the God of Israel. The only God, the true God, the eternal and everlasting one, he spoke everything into being. He put everything together. And then as we read on in the creation story, we discover something really critical and important. That we're not so much reading some scientific document of how things came into being. We're not reading a biology lecture. We're not reading a physics lecture. We're not reading a geology lecture. Instead, we are reading something that goes far deeper than science. We are reading something that goes far deeper than what pure, literal fact can convey. We're reading deep spiritual truths about God, the world, and ourselves. I know this goes without saying, but we need to say it anyway, that God didn't need to make this world. God didn't need to make this world. God didn't make this world because God was lonely. God didn't make this world because God was bored. God didn't make this world because he was in quarantine like all of us were last year and God had nothing better to do. Instead, the reason God made this world, God made this world out of love. Love unlike any that you and I could ever fathom or comprehend. That the love of God, because Scripture tells us God is love, the love of God, the love within God's own being, the love within the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, that love could not be contained. It literally spilled out, it overflowed into God's act of creation. And then when God made this world, there was order, there was purpose, there was intent. Unlike what the Enuma Elisha says, there was order, purpose, intent. And then it's the pinnacle of creation, the climax of all that God had made, the icing on the cake, God made human beings like you and me, and God set us apart from the rest of creation. Listen to what it says here uh, about human beings. This is Genesis 1, verse 26 and verse 27. This is the very first statement about humanity that we find in the Bible. Then God said, let us make human beings in our image to be like us. They will reign over the fish in the sea, the birds of the sky, the livestock, and all the wild animals on the earth and the small animals that scurry along the ground. And so it says, God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And so what makes human beings different from the rest of creation? What separates us from the animals? What separates us from the plants? The fact that you and I alone have been made in the image of God. Theologians refer to this concept as the imago Dei. That's Latin for image of God. We alone have been made in God's image. But let me ask you a question. Have you ever wondered what it means for us to be made in God's image? Have you ever asked that question? What does it mean for us? What does it mean for me to be made in God's image? Uh, theologians have wrestled with that question for a long time. But I think a big part of what it means is this. We have been made from and for community. Think about this with me. First, we've been made from community. We've been made by the very God who himself is community. God is Father, God is Son, God is Holy Spirit. God has been community from all of eternity. There, there's relationships going on within the Godhead. And because we've been made in the image of this community God, we have been made for community. We've been made for community with God and community with each other, our relationship with God and our relationship with each other. That's what we've been made for. What did Jesus say was the greatest commandment? Love God, love other people in the same way that you love yourselves. 
God hasn't only made us for a relationship with him, as important as that is, God has also made us for a relationship with the people around us. We see this truth communicated in a pretty powerful way when we come to the second chapter of Genesis, verse 18, of the first half of this verse. Listen to what it says just after God makes Adam the very first man. Then the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. It is not good for the man to be alone. Now, what's interesting is, throughout the creation story, there is this phrase that gets repeated over and over again. You remember what it is? And God saw that it was? And God saw that it was? And so God makes the sun. God sees that the sun is good. God makes the moon. God sees that the moon is good. God makes the stars. He sees that the stars are good. God makes the plants. The plants are good. The animals are good. And then we come to Genesis 2.18, and what does it say for the very first time? It is not good for the man to be alone. Who does the man stand in for? The man stands in for you and me. All of us as human beings, it is not good for any of us to be alone. And long story short, this book upon which we're um, basing this series, Joshua McNall, the writer, he says that one time he and his wife had these really good friends, another couple, and they would go on double dates with this couple. They would go to the movies, go out to dinner. Sometimes they would take vacation together. Well, he says that one time, this couple was taking a walk, and they stepped off the crosswalk. And all of a sudden, they were struck by an out-of-control vehicle. The, wife, the um, husband's leg was broken. The wife, however, was immediately killed upon impact. And so the husband was taken to the hospital, and he was being rushed in for emergency surgery, and he was trying to process what had just happened, the loss of his wife, his partner, his best friend, his spouse. And somebody asked him this question, can you tell us what you're most afraid of? And he said, yes. Being alone. It is not good for any of us to be alone. We were made out of conflict, folks. We were made with intent and purpose from and for community. And then the last piece of the creation story that I want to highlight this morning, and there's a whole lot more uh, that we could talk about, but the last piece that I want to highlight is that the kind of community for which God made us is not just community in general. Instead, it's the deepest and purest kind of community there is. Community that isn't marked by sham or pretense or superficialness, but instead community marked by openness, transparency, vulnerability, being fully open to God and fully open to the people around us. Listen with me to what it says here in Genesis 2.25. This is the very last line of the creation story. Now the man, that would be Adam, now the man and his wife, who would come to be called Eve, the man and his wife were both naked, but they felt no shame. Now what did it mean for the man and the woman to be naked? I mean, were they literally in the buff, somewhere in the garden? When we read it too literally, we miss the deeper meaning. What does it mean to be naked? It means to be open, vulnerable, transparent, not to have any secrets. That's the kind of community God made us for. But that's not what we experience in the present, is it? Because you and I, we would rather run away. We would rather take cover and hide than experience that kind of community. Why? because something happened along the way that disrupted this community, which we're going to talk about next week called the fall. 
And then as we're going to see throughout the rest of the sermon series, God's intent has been to restore us to a place of nakedness. And what I mean by that is God's intent is to restore us to a place of complete and utter transparency before God and before each other. Folks, we weren't made out of conflict. We were made with intent and purpose from and for community. That's what it means to be a human being made in the image of God, put together by the very one who holds all things together. Thanks be to God. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.